Enter the creative world with Mind Your Own Marketing Business. Explore a variety of trends in the creative landscape, getting insider knowledge and advice from the industry's best. You're just proud to present Mind Your Own Marketing Business with host Tim Parsons. Thanks for joining us on Mind Your Own Marketing Business. I'm Tim Barsness, founder of web and mobile development team Fjorge, and today on our show, we'll be talking with Derek Haney about his social media marketing agency, Volpine Interactive. Welcome to the show, Derek. Hello, thank you for having me. We're, we're glad you could be here. Um, Derek, can you tell us a little bit about Volpine Interactive? Sure, so Volpine Interactive is a social media marketing agency, whatever that means. I actually don't think that there is such a thing um, but it's a marketing agency and social media is definitely our focal point. And essentially that helps as a starting point for conversations with people. But we do tend to do more in email, influencer marketing, and a few other things. But basically social media marketing agency is how we describe it. Got it. And you're the founder of the company? Yeah, I co-founded it with my wife, actually. Oh, very cool. Um, so... Tell me a little bit about how you and your wife came to found Volpine Interactive. What about your background or, or you know, your story made you decide to start an agency? So, yeah, it starts a long time ago. Uh, first in college, I, was, I, uh, I took one marketing class. In, I was a business management economics major, and I loved marketing. But I was also, before I graduated college, making six figures playing high-stakes poker, so it was 2008, the Great Recession, and all of my friends couldn't get jobs. There was no way I was going to do anything else but play poker. So I played high stakes poker for 10 years and made a good amount of money, spent it about as fast as I made it. Um, but it, it was a good experience and, and a very, there was a lot of interesting challenges, ways that you separate your emotions and, from logic, as well as experience what we call the variance train. And... Ultimately, I always knew I was going to get back into business. Throughout those, the whole 10 years, if I wasn't reading a poker book, I was reading a business book. And for a while, I thought it might be day trading or investing, but um, it ultimately landed me on creating a tech company, which was around a card game for poker. And then I had to learn how to market that, that tech company, and that led me down the path of digital marketing, at which point I realized the tech company was never going to make any money. My, I needed a creative partner, and my wife is an artist and has like a degree in graphic design. And so we came together to form the agency and started working at that time on local small business uh, kind of stuff. Got it. What made you want to leave the poker industry? So in poker, you have a, uh, it's, it's a shrinking ceiling for, for the industry, meaning that Everyone is getting better and you're going to make less money year over year. You're never really going to increase um, when, once you kind of hit your own ceiling. And I definitely had hit my own ceiling. I'm, I was very good, but I was, ne I was not I was I was just below world class and I was never going to break it. I was never going to break that because I just wasn't smart enough. And so unless I could find a better situation, like moving to a different city or country or playing online or in a group of people where no other professional was playing. I was never really going to make more money per hour. And in fact, over time, we saw money per hour going down because everyone else was getting a little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit better. So they're all catching up to me. And so in poker, you play around a table of eight of your opponents and your goal is to outsmart them, to take money from them. And it's a negative sum game because the house takes a rake. In business, you get to work around the table with a bunch of other people where you can make money in a positive sum game and help each other out at the same time. It's uh, the ceiling is a lot higher, and really, 
I'm tell business is way easier than poker, even though I'm really surprised the stress level is the, about the same. Or more. <laughs> that's funny. It's also um, surprising to me that you say that business is way easier than than poker. Um, I think that's that's interesting. Um, I'm curious that that ceiling that you saw in poker is that because the game's not growing anymore? Yeah, essentially, in, at some point, in order for the game to continue growing, you need new money to come in, or uh, you know, a lot of my money was made off of uh, wealthy people, a lot of business owners, a lot of moguls, uh, millionaires and billionaires. And uh, I played with a lot of like uh, professional sports players, you know, NBA, uh, NFL uh, kind of guys. And th that was, you know, that's always great money. I played with a Saudi prince once. That was crazy. Uh, <laughs> that, that was um, maybe it was Saudi. It was the Middle East prince. I, I'm actually not sure. But the uh, the. But those are like very rare days, right? These guys don't really play poker day in, day out, and they're not just going to spew hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars. And even when they do, you only get a piece of that. I, so it's like essentially my job was to be um, an entertainment for wealthy business owners and, and moguls. And so, um, you know, that's not, that's not really where I see myself in life, and I think I can do a lot more. In fact, one of them, uh, ex-partner at Goldman Sachs, said, to me, Derek, you would be so much better off in the business world. And I took that to heart and uh, and he, I still keep in touch with him. And he's run multiple businesses himself. And um, and and it's yeah, that kind of set me on the path. Got it. Interesting. You you mentioned that, you know, you always need new people coming into the game in order to really make money. I had an experience on a cruise ship where um, I was sitting at a table and people would come up, put money down all in and then lose and walk away. And that was uh, a source of new money. I kind of thought at one point that I could live on a cruise ship and, and pay for every cruise just playing poker with people walking up and throwing down money. Yeah. The, the size of the cruise ship is very small, right? Eventually, everyone in the cruise ship will have lost money and they probably won't come back the next day. Yeah, but they turn over every week. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's true. So you have seven <laughs> days. Yeah. To take yep. it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That was my thought. I never did it, but I thought it would be an interesting an interesting yeah, thing the to cruise try. ship rake is is insane so like yeah. you know they take a large percentage of what you're going to make right but nobody stays at the table very long um so t tell me a little bit then you, you said you always love marketing what is it about marketing that that um you're so passionate about for me marketing and poker are actually very synonymous um and like it's basically a mix of psychology human psychology user psychology that kind of thing um and with mixed with uh, logic and analytics, right? So very, very deep uh, decision tree analysis is required. And we need to understand, I mean, just thinking about something like the buyer's journey, right? Each, each decision point in the buyer's journey is they work down towards their purchase decision. And then how can we influence that, let's say with marketing collateral? This is exactly the same way you might play a hand of poker and look for an optimal decision tree path in order to play a hand the right way to get, you know, maximize your expected value or your opportunity. Got it. Interesting. Um, so you're always, I mean, in, in the marketing world, optimizing expected value or return on investment um, when you make decisions. It, but you have to balance that with variance. And then unfortunately, with my job, you have to balance that with client expectations and client uh, what, you know, like I, I have to uh, unfortunately, you know, agencies are beholden to basically monthly results, I would say. So uh, so you actually have to show immediate results or something towards that 
in order for a client to be happy, people don't operate the same way that a poker player would. I could lose money for six months on end. Sure, I'm not happy about it, but if I know that I'm at the top of my game and I'm playing really well, like I, there's no, I'm not gonna change, I'm not gonna like, you know, change my strategy just based off of a whim because I know it's still the best strategy. I just have to, you know, sort out other variables. So there's, uh, yeah, that's the only caveat to it, but hopefully optimizing for maximum long-term and short-term expected value and balancing those client expectations. You know, I think that um, the short-term perspective is a little bit unfortunate. I'm curious, in your experience, how much, how much leeway do you have before results are expected? So for me, I definitely find that clients are expecting results within one month, but we force three month contracts because uh, it does take a while to really get settled in with the client and, and show some sort of ROI. And there is typically some sort of trackable ROI from what we do, but social media operates kind of weird in that there's two different components. Paid, which should have, it's not always a direct response. Paid can influence short and long-term kind of ROI. It's important to recognize what you're kind of going for. Typically in paid though, you're aiming for a shorter term ROI and you know there will be a longer term ROI somewhere after that. So you might put 75% of that into short term and 25% into long term. Whereas organic, organic, it's actually the exact opposite. When you're investing in organic, you're investing in a long-term branded relationship with a growing audience. So when you start at a thousand users or followers and you're sending out one Facebook message or post or one tweet, you know, there, no one, this is not having a big impact because it's a small audience and, and it's, it might, and, and it's just starting, right? You, you, people aren't used to seeing content from you yet, perhaps, or something like that. So over time, they might see hundreds and hundreds of messages from you over the course of a year or two years or five years or something like that. And that really builds that brand loyalty and affinity. And also, as you go about going you know, forward with that time, you ha you're not marketing to 1,000 people anymore. You're marketing to 10,000 and 100,000. So the growth of that organic following brings long-term ROI, which most businesses don't even have the patience for, to be honest. Whereas paid is bringing short-term ROI, but it actually comes at a fairly steep cost. And, um, and you have to, in order to make paid work, you really do have to know a lot of numbers in your business and you have to make sure that a dollar in is pretty quickly getting you more than a dollar out. Otherwise, you're not gonna wanna you know, sink costs into paid. It's all an investment, everything, but of course, not all investments pan out. That's kind of how I think about it. That makes sense. Do you um, do you find that most most companies you start working with on the paid side have you know those those metrics that you need in order to show that they're getting more than a dollar when they put a dollar in? Never. <laughs> um, yeah, we we've worked with. Uh, I mean, out of basically the the couple dozen companies we we've worked with, I've never been satisfied with the numbers that a client had ready for me. Uh, we've always had to spend a lot of our time going in and getting those numbers, making estimates about them. So the, the main numbers, I think there's there's four big ones. Let's see if I can remember them. Um, cost of customer acquisition. What is your current cost of customer acquisition? What is your goal for cost of customer acquisition? And what that means is basically, are you willing to spend $10 to get a new customer or 100 or 1,000, right? It's different for every business uh, based on the price point, actually based on these other factors. So. Lifetime value. What is the lifetime value of a customer revenue wise, right? If, if I buy a customer for $10, they make me $100 in revenue. Great. Now we know dollars in, dollars out. 
but lifetime value also should probably have some sort of factor along, you know, how long is that lifetime? Like, is it a month is the lifetime? Is it a single purchase? Is it a year of purchases? And obviously a SaaS might, might have a churn rate and some other things associated with it. The other thing is margin, right? So, so of that $100 in revenue, what margin do, do we actually make on it? And typically I might think gross margin, but you could even get, get into the nitty gritty and calculate it out a little bit better. And of course that might include, if that includes the cost of product and a few other things. And then that once you know that it costs $60 to produce the product and the revenue from it is a hundred, you know that you have a margin of $40. And so if you're just selling that product one time, you know that a customer, you cannot acquire a customer for more than $40 because you will lose money on the transaction. However, that's where lifetime value really gets tricky because if that person ever refers anyone or, um, or, or buys from you again, then it's worth acquiring them even if you break, mo- break even or lose money. You just have to be patient about waiting for that re- investment to come back to you. And can you afford that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then it becomes a cash flow problem, right? And so we, you have to really understand how much cash can I invest into this? What does my overall budget look like for maybe 2018 or something like that? And how can I allocate? What, what amount of money can I put aside month over month knowing that it'll come back to me in a two month, three month time frame, And you can actually start to map this out with financial projections. And once you've done an initial maybe um, test in like Facebook ads or something like that. Can you give me an example of a company where it might make sense to take a loss on, on um, margin minus customer acquisition cost um, so that they could get a referral? Well, definitely, I guess that is, I think that might be the fourth metric there is referral rate, understanding that word of mouth is still the biggest channel. And, you know, really what my business tries to do is amplify word of mouth using social. That's like a big part of of what we say that we can do, getting more user generated content, getting people to sit down at the dinner table and talk about your product or service because they love you. Like those are the unseen benefits of, well, first having an awesome product and then having that um, deeper relationship with your with your customer or client. So uh, what wait, what was the question? again? Oh, referral. Right. So if, if we're thinking about um, we can definitely lose money up front if, if we know that a referral is coming, especially if we know that the, that referral is coming within one day. So if you might think about um, apps and app downloads, I think that's the one where your viral coefficient, your referral rate is really close to, uh, it's clo- uh, tracked on a daily basis. In SaaS, monthly recurring subscription, right? It's gonna be tracked on a monthly basis. And in each case, if you have a K, a viral coefficient of one or higher, then um, then you, you can expect that if I acquire one customer, I will get an additional one customer. So you can definitely lose money on the first customer and you can wait it out. On average, you expect to get one new customer from each one that you you uh, get pay for yourself. Sure. So in that example, it would be something like something social or something where you might be calling on your friends once you join something to have them join. That's definitely something I recommend for businesses, but it could even be simpler than that. I am. Um, I mean, you know, the big company like Coca-Cola is obviously, you know, uh, they are they are in every market. And so they all they do is brand awareness. Right. Uh, obviously, if you were buying one can of Coca-Cola, the ads would not pay for themselves. Right. They're trying to build that lifetime affinity. 
So and 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 they're and they know that like by having one more person using Coca-Cola, they're probably going to get that person to show that to other people. They're not even talking about it, right? When you have Coke in your fridge instead of Pepsi, and somebody comes over to your house and they ask for a Pepsi, you give them a Coca-Cola, right? You, right? So like you're not actually even touting the brand. You're not saying, I can't believe you drink Pepsi. You should only drink Coca-Cola. You're just by the simple act of using it in any sort of public way, like you're 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 bec you've become an advocate. And in a in the minor part of that, that advocacy has a deep effect on other people because we have peer pressure. The re we all want to fit in. And we also are all taking our preferences and our choices based off of what we see of those around us. Absolutely. And I like how you um, call people who consume Coca-Cola users. Um, <laughs> so I want to change gears a little bit here. Uh, you founded a company with your wife. What's her name? Uh, Shana Haney. Shana. Um, so tell me about your experience founding, founding a company with your significant other. Oh, yeah. Um, well, it didn't start very well. Um, in the beginning, she was significantly far behind me, let's just say, in marketing knowledge and all that stuff. So I was very much the boss. I was, you know, the employer and she was kind of like the employee. And even though we had co-founded it together, it was working that way because I had a whole bunch more business sense, marketing sense and experience than she did. But really, I think she's power leveled far beyond that and now um, really what when it started to click for us was I left the company for about six months to take a internal head of growth role at another company and she took over everything and when she did that she realized all the problems and pain that I had and she grew really fast from it while getting advice from me because we were sitting next to each other working from home and and from there when I came back we had a clear separation of our roles and our job duties and she had extremely phenomenal experience and knowledge in what she needed to do and execute on. So it wasn't until we actually divided and conquered that we stopped butting heads. I had a similar situation where I, I left the company for a brief period of time. Um, I'll be very brief and I, I feel like the team grew a lot while I was gone. So maybe um, I as a leader, I'm not, I'm not delegating as well as I probably should. Yeah, I, I totally feel you on that. And it's really tough to do. I mean, but we, we, we do have to get out of their way, but we also have to guide them. And, and for me, you know, I always I just worry because uh, I see mistakes and I want to correct them. And and so, you know, it's not necessarily micromanaging, but it's being picky and no, like I know that I can I, I run better ads than anyone else in my my company, better targeting and strategy. You know, and, and so getting out of the way is tough. Yeah, totally. Um, I'm curious, if I wanted to get started with Facebook ads, um, what's the easiest way to, to get in the game? If you know nothing, you shouldn't do it on your own. Um, dabbling is going to have a have have very poor results. It's kind of like dabbling in poker. If you just if you'd never played a single hand before, you're going to dabble. You're like, well, I understand that I can, you know, I put money in and it's um, it's really tough to to make it work, especially because what they don't tell you, what Facebook doesn't tell you, is that 90% of the work happens outside of Facebook ads platform. Like it, it happens with knowing your numbers, it happens with um, maybe things on your website or page or email marketing, all the things that need to be in place prior to executing Facebook ads so that you can prove that return on ad spend or that ROI. 
uh, tracking is a huge part of it as well. I, like um, none of my clients have ever had proper tracking installed to see clearly those conversion moments coming directly from Facebook ads. But if so, let's say you have all those things though, then I guess I would, I would say, you know, the, the best thing to probably start with the easiest one is some sort of direct response email acquisition strategy where maybe you're not asking straight for the purchase, but you're asking people to uh, maybe give either give their email from a lead ad or we're, we're really uh, fond of right now messenger ads and using a chat bot instead of actually asking for the email or just sending them to a uh, to the homepage or the site and or some sort of squeeze page so that we can capture email addresses and then that will begin the marketing process of, of moving them down the rest of the funnel. That's the, tell, yeah. tell me more about the messenger ads. Oh yeah, so um, we, we love chatbots and uh, I mean, one of our mantras before Facebook chatbots, I think they're a huge thing now, but they're still in the early adopter stage. But we, we used to say we do one-to-one -one marketing at scale and that's what chatbots really are able to accomplish for us. Uh, it's, it's a lot like email in that you have kind of a list, you can segment users based on actions, and you can send them content really as often as you want. Um, but the beauty is, is that they come through messenger instead of email. And we already know about the promotions tab and email, you know, lots and less and less emails are being seen, opened and clicked on. It's tough to get through all the noise in email. But in Messenger, we have 85% open rates, 40% click-through rates. Like we're, you know, people are loving it. They, they, they and they, they talk back to you. They're, they, because it's Messenger, it's not email, where typically you feel like you're just being broadcast to. In Messenger, we actually open up conversations all the time. And so for Messenger ads, we can do, there is an ad option in Facebook called Send Message. And another option is to actually have people comment below. When someone comments below a post, you can actually send them a message and if they respond to that message, they will opt into your messenger bot and then be allowed to market to later. In this way, you can grow a very solid list. You can also, you know, I think it's very important that you, you're upfront with people, you ask them to join, they know how to unsubscribe, all those things are really, really important. But you can just, from there, send them content. So you, you've got a new video that you're gonna release to Facebook, give a sneak peek to your messenger list the day before, and maybe it's 10 seconds. And then the next day you send them, you actually send them to the Facebook post asking them to comment below or tag a friend. We see this get deeper engagement on the post. And because you sent them from Messenger to the Facebook post, it's a very congruent feel because Messenger is part of Facebook. Whereas sending them from email to Facebook, it's not as, as easy. And then when they get to that Facebook post, uh, this is actually a cool thing that um, happens is we're, we kind of game the Facebook algorithm because to Facebook it looks like a user has volunteered to look at this post and then comment below it so it's going to shoot your relevancy score up and you're going to be seen organically by more and more people so messenger in you know ads leads to messenger engagement which leads to on-page Facebook engagement which leads to uh, a continuous growth cycle are you seeing anybody doing that with B2B uh, Derek Halpern would probably be the one, only one that I can think of right now. It is tougher in B2B, but it's definitely doable. We're working on that for a, it's kind of a B2B company. It's called Growth Marketing Conference. It's an events company. Um, it feels like it's a mix between B2B and B2C sometimes because it is a lot of uh, end users, but it, technically those people are often, you know, in marketing departments at companies. Got it. Um so let's move into a couple news stories here. Uh, the first one, I guess both are from your blog. The first one is titled, 
What is website retargeting and how can it make you money? Uh, can you give us a summary? Yeah, absolutely. If you're not, if you have a website and it is providing some sort of result for you right now, even if that's one lead a month or whatever, you know, one sale a month, if you're not doing website retargeting, you're definitely missing out. So basically anybody with a working website should be doing retargeting. Um, if you think about it, what retargeting is, is sending an ad to people that have visited your site. People that have visited your site, 99% of them, you don't have their email address or contact info, but they went to your site one way or the other through organic search, direct, social, whatever it was. And they're just starting to get to know your brand. If you, so they're literally the closest people you have to being a prospective lead, essentially. Prospective customer or lead or uh, really, you know, they're the closest to conversion that you have in your whole funnel or business, however you want to think about it. So if you're not sending a retargeting ad to the people that are closest to you, yet you're trying some sort of marketing activity, like you're doing a TV commercial or you're doing, um, or, or you're, you know, whatever it is, you're, you're doing an email campaign, you're doing those things, but you're not sending an ad to the people that are most close, you know, closest to conversion, doesn't make any sense. So always start with that retargeting at the bottom of the funnel and work your way back out. It prints money every time. Got it. Very cool. I'm, I'm all for that. Uh, our second article today uh, looks like by Shana, also from your blog, um, is titled, What Industries Are Good for Social Media? So Derek, what industries are good for social media? Yeah, I, and I think this comes down to that viral coefficient, the, the K. How, how likely is somebody to want to refer uh, business to you? And that was something interesting. I was talking to somebody who runs a wig company um, the other day. And if you think about originally, I was like, oh, this is in fashion, like people love wigs. It's so much to talk about. But when you really look at it, like a lot of people don't want to tell anybody that they're wearing a wig, right? <laughs> like, um, like the people that really need them and are wearing them, not just for a fashion or a cool look, they're not really talking about them. And so there's actually a lower viral coefficient. Same thing with my tech company, which was an educational tool um, for a card game, no one wants to brag to the world that they're better at the card game than you because they actually make their money by being better. They don't, you know, and they, so they don't right. want to discourage. Yeah, they don't want to so, teach you how. Yeah. So even though there are people that talk about it and they, they chime in, those companies have lower viral coefficients than, than others. High viral coefficient is like a company in beauty or fashion. We have a company that's a subscription box and um, one of the highest K viral coefficients I know. Um, you know, they have these sneak peeks and women, because it's a, it's beauty products, they lose their minds when these sneak peeks come out. They just go nuts. They share it. They comment. They're, they are liking it. They're loving it. They're like, I can't wait to get my hands on this. And they just, they want to share it with their friends in the world, right? They're, the referral rate and the word of mouth is just naturally really high. So you know that just by putting, you know, $1 into organic Facebook or any social media or, or paid, that you're going to see a, um, you're going to see it spread a long ways, whereas in B2B enterprise sales, and it is this is com it's completely doable in B2B enterprise, but your your viral coefficient is typically lower because your probably your product's probably less sexy. You probably don't have a cool marketing video or collateral. It's probably kind of boring. You know, you're you're probably you know, but that being said, of course, you're going to make a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand dollars when you close a deal. So it's not like Facebook ads doesn't work for you, but you can understand why social media um, 
doesn't uh, doesn't grow really fast. You know, you're not going to get a hundred thousand followers for these pages. You only need ten followers that will do a million dollars in business with you. You don't need to grow those large audiences. Yeah, totally. Um, and we are out of time, so that is it for today on Mind Your Own Marketing Business. Thanks for being on the show today, Derek. Yeah, thank you so much. I have so much more I want to say, but uh, we got to go. So I, you, I got it. You bet. I'd love to do it again sometime. Uh, you can. Uh, find Derek online at vulpineinteractive.agency. Also on social, me- social media with the link derek.link. That's D-E-R-R-I-C dot link. Uh, you'll find his Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Quora there. You can also email him at derek, that's D-E-R-R-I-C again, at vulpineinteractive.agency. And thank you to, to our listeners for joining us. You can download episodes of the program by going to fjordsdigital.com slash mindyourownmarketingbusiness or subscribing to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and iHeartRadio.